سيدي بارك الله فيك الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين أسبغ علينا نعمه ظاهرة وباطنة أسبغ علينا نعمة ظاهرة وباطنة وإن تعدوا نعمة الله لا تحصوها وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له من في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم وأشهد أن سيدنا وأولنا وهادينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسل على فترة من الرسل وقلة من العلم وضلالة في الناس من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يعتصم بالله فقد هدي قلبه ومن يعتصم بالله فإن الله على كل شيء قدير أما بعد Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters In a couple of days the Muslims of the world will be observing virtually the end of the obligations of the Hajj culminating obviously in Eid al-Adha and because we have been throughout the many khutbas of the past we have been trying our best to place the meanings of the Qur'an in real time as it as they relate to our actual and sometimes disturbing events around us and because many Muslims have inherited a traditional mindset if we can call it a mindset they've just inherited traditions without thinking through those traditions we have to at times take a step backward and try to decipher the critical meanings that open up avenues of guidance for us 
One of the criticisms that comes our way because of the contents of this type of khutbah on Friday is that we shed light on those who have power and wealth. You probably have grown familiar with this refrain in these khutbahs, power and wealth. We don't do that just because we've learned some political science or have a degree in international relations or anything like that. We do that simply because we want to understand the relevant meanings that come to us from Allah and demonstrated to us by His Prophet. That's all we are doing. Nothing more nothing less with Allah's assistance. Now we're going to try to bring, to shed light on what we are doing. We're going to take a small surah that I think most of us have memorized and try to see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining to us the meanings of this Qur'an in the time and the place in which this Qur'an was revealed. This surah is called Surat Al-Masad. It begins by Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Tabbat yada abi lahab wa tab. ما أغنى عنه ماله وما كسب سيصلى نارا ذات لهب وامرأته حمالة الحطب في جيدها حبل من مسد Now, please, unlike, you know, khutbas that try to put people to sleep, Please stimulate your mind as we go through the meanings of this short surah. In the first instance, let me just cover some territory here. There's a couple of words in this surah that have two pronunciations that don't violate any meaning. It's just a matter of linguistics here. The first one is the word lahab. One qira'ah says, and that's the qira'ah that we have all inherited. There's six other qira'at that many of us are unfamiliar with. So one of the other qira'at says, instead of pronouncing the word lahab with a fatha on the ha, it pronounces it with a sukoon on the ha. So you say lahab. Not lahab, lahab. That's one word. The other word in this surah that is rendered in another qira'ah, وَمْرَأَتُهُ حَمَّالَةَ الْحَطَبِ حَمَّالَةَ The ta at the end of the word حَمَّالَةَ has a fatha on it. That's the qira'ah. Hafs an Asim, the qira'ah that we all read. 
Another qira'a says, Hamalatul hatab. There's a dhamma on the ta. Okay, we cleared this l- linguistic part of this surah. Now we come to the juice, the core meanings of this surah. The first word in this surah is tabbat. And tabbat means, Allah is saying, tabbat yada. The hands of Abu Lahab shall, shall suffer tabab. What does this mean? And what the hand here is in reference to whatever Abu Lahab does. Whatever he does is going to lead to tabab. There are two other words in the Quran that are the cousins of the word tabba. One of them is tabab. And the other one is tatbib. Tabab and tatbib are the nouns, and tabba is the verb. What this word means is whatever a person is doing is leading to a loss, and that loss leads to destruction. And there's no positive outcome to whatever the person is doing. This is, I mean, the English translations, they say, woe unto Abu Lahab. Woe, I don't know. When you, when you hear that word, and this is a criticism of the translations, when you hear the word, oh, woe, or another word may be awful, when you hear that word, does the meaning Does it include the meaning that whatever you are doing is a loss and that loss is not going to lead to anything beneficial? This is the meaning of tabbat yada abi lahab. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying yada abi lahab. He didn't say tabba abu lahab. He could have just said tabba abu lahab without saying his hands, what his hands are doing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is focusing our attention on whatever, whatever Abu Lahab is doing. Whatever he is doing is going to lead to a loss and is going to lead to some type of destruction. Tabbat yada abi lahabin. And then Allah says, Watab. Now he comes to his person. Notice here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not exclude this person and say, generalize and say, Tabbat ayadi al mushrikeen. Could have said that. Tabbat ayadi al kafirin, etc. No. He specified a person. And for your information, you have to be a little familiar with the Arabic language. The word Abu is used when it pertains to a person. It it is used for a specific characteristic in that person. Recently, this MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia... They call him Abu Minshar, the father of the saw. 
And that's in reference to the slaughter of his co-citizen journalist, Khashoggi, in Istanbul, Turkey, last year. They cut him to death. So, in the Arabic phraseology of things, they call him Abu Minshar. Of course, this is to condemn him. And it's used in, la in the language. You know, if someone has a, let's say, I'm just giving an example for you to get a feeling here. If someone has a long nose, they, they will call him Abu Anf. If someone has a long posture, Abu Tawila. And it goes on like this. So whatever a person is known for, whether it is famous or infamous, the word Abu, father of, I know in English it sounds a little odd, but this is the way that language is used. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses a, a feature of that language to tell us about a characteristic of this person, Abu Lahab. So he calls him Allah jalla wa'ala, calls him Abu Lahab, the father of, I mean literally speaking, it means the father of the flame. But beyond the literal meaning, it means the person who's inflammatory. That's what it means. I'm, I'm leading you here in areas where many people, they are because they have no control of the language, many meanings are lost in translation. So this person is an inflammatory person. He's known before Islam, before the Prophet received Allah's words, he was known if wherever there's a problem, he'd come and exacerbate the problem. There are people who have that nature in them. If there's some type of problem, they come and they inflame that problem. It's a small problem, they make it a big problem. It's a minor issue, they amplify the issue. Troublemakers, that's, that's his character. So when you read this surah, Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab, understand that. Allah is speaking about a, uh, a troublemaking character. And then he says, مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبُ His money, his assets, his possessions, and whatever he gains, whatever he has gained, are of no value. They're not going to do him any good. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speak? Why does he want us Al-Haq subhanahu wa ta'ala could have said, said ma aghna anhu shay. There's nothing that will do him any good. And that includes everything. Why did Allah Azza wa Jal, why was he specific? He said mal. Ma aghna anhu maluhu wa ma kasab. Because money has influence. You know that. Money has authority. 
money buys and money sells. Money controls and money manipulates. And this is what this person had. And Allah went to that feature in that person just like we go to the parallels of Abi Lahab in the Arabian Peninsula today. There's many of them running around. But does anyone, when they read this surah, Surah Al-Masad, does it come to your mind that when Allah is speaking about it, because the Qur'an didn't stop with Abi Lahab, it goes on to include everyone who meets the features and the characteristics of Abi Lahab. مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ So when we say مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ We can say that about these people who have the billions and all the money-making mechanisms they have and all the profit-generating systems that they have. This is what we're speaking about. This ayah is not frozen in time. It is inclusive of the contemporary Abu Lahabs or Aba Lahab. مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ Anything else he may have gained, acquired in this life, it's not going to be of any benefit for him. سَيَصْلَى نَارًا ذَاتَ لَهَبْ He is going to... The word salah, in in also in the exact or literal meaning of it means grilled. When you grill meat, you grill something on the fire. That's what this means. He's going to be grilled with a fire that has flames to it. You see, he's called the father of the flame, the inflammatory character or personality. And he's going to suffer the flames of his inflammation. See, in this world, we have feelings. Some of us are greedy. Some of us are selfish. Some of us are nationalists. Some of us are sectarians. And, the, and this goes on and on. These are internal feelings. Allah knows these internal feelings. He knows you very well. Don't think you're going to be able to hide anything. You might be able to hide something from me or from the other person or even from the closest person to you. But you can't hide anything from Allah. So if you harbor, if Abu Lahab harbored this type of character in this world, It's going to be matched. This is a feeling. It's abstract or it's something um, non-sensual. We can't subject it to our senses. It's inside of us. When Allah describes for us the punishment of this destructive feeling, He makes it a material one. So if His feelings were inflammatory in this world, his punishment is going to be the flame in the world to come. سَيَصْلَى نَارًا ذَاتَ لَهَبٍ وَمْرَأَتُهُ And his madam and his wife 
حمالة الحطب. There's a relationship between the flame. حمالة الحطب means the one who who delivers, who does the delivery of timber, of lumber, endlessly. Keeps on doing it. Keeps on bringing combustibles. Now, remember, this area was revealed in Mecca. Mecca was not a jungle. Mecca was not a place where you had a lot of forests and trees and all of these things around. It was a barren desert. So if we literally understand this area as the wife of Abi Lahab carrying wood, where's the wood? There's no wood to carry. So what, what, what does this mean in relation to her husband? What does it mean? He's, he's causing inflammatory social problems and she's feeding the flame. That's what hatab means here. She's the person who brings him the combustion material. It could be rumors. It could be propaganda. Whatever it is. وَامْرَأَتُهُ حَمَّالَةَ الْحَطَبِ فِي جِيدِهَا حَبْلٌ مِّن مَّسَدٍ Jeed is... There are three similar words in the Qur'an. Remember the Qur'an, there's no synonyms in the Qur'an. These words have peculiar, subtle differences. One word is raqabah. The other word is unuq. These are Qur'anic words. Raqabah, riqab. Unuq, a'naq. Singular and plural. And then we have the word jeed, which also refers to the same. These words are to be understood in the context of the ayahs that they are in. Then we have this word jeed, which also refers to the same general area here, which we call the neck. The difference between jeed and the other two words in the Quran is, it is the front opening of a woman from her neck down towards her chest. This is called the jeed area. This is your jeed. This is the place where usually women, they place their necklace in this area, whether it's historical or it's contemporary. This is still a, you can say, an international or a cosmic Tradition. So Allah is saying, This area here is a habil, is a rope from Masad. And this is the name of the surah, Masad. The surah is not called Surat Abi Jahl or Surat Hamalat al Hatab. It's called Surat al Masad. Al Masad means, unlike the very, uh, uh, you may call them superficial translations or shallow translations. That's the word. I don't want to get on anyone's nerves. The shallow translations that we have, they call they they say it's a rope. Well, he's already said rope. Hablun min masad. 
Then some of them say Masad is the fiber of the rope. No, no. If you dig a little more into the meaning of this, it means multiple ropes. When you bring one, two, three, or four ropes, and then you begin to bind them together. This is in reference to the rumors and the propaganda that she knitted together or kneaded with a K, K K-N-E-A-D, together. And this is what happens with some of our characters, whether they are male or female. In this case, we have the combination of an infamous two. One of them feeds the other. They They do this even in their bedroom because they're husband and wife. Now, let's take a step backward also to give a little background context to this surah. Abu Lahab was the Prophet's uncle. I don't know if you know his name. Some of our traditional books, they just traditional. His name was Abd al-Uzza. Uzza was one of the idols in the Kaaba. And we have some of the Prophet's uncles who were against him and some of the Prophet's uncles who were with him. Abdul Uzza was against him. He was an avowed enemy of his nephew. And this nephew of his, the Prophet Muhammad, when he was a baby, he probably was hugged and kissed by his uncle. But whatever he did, doesn't when, when the Prophet was a baby, or when he was growing up, doesn't count as much as he did when the Prophet explained Iman and Islam for him and for others. This is what is registered in Allah's record. The, the Prophet had another uncle, Abu Talib. Now I ask you, I, I don't want you to answer obviously, but this question goes deep down inside your brain and your heart to try to reconsider what you've been reading. We all know Abu Talib. Does anyone not know who Abu Talib is? All of us know. Do you know his name? Abu Talib is just like Abu, right? The word Abu, the father of Talib. Like other fathers of so-and-so. It's not his real name. So what's his real name? Does anyone know? And Abu Talib was the the brother of Abdullah, the the Prophet's father, Abdullah. These were the two brothers from the same father and mother. Abdul Muttalib was married to more than one. And from the same mother, Abu 
Abu Talib and Abdullah were born from the same mother and father. So what's his name? His name is Abd Manaf. You know, people at that time used to name their children Abd of a certain god or a certain idol. Others of the Prophet's uncles were Hamza, and we all know Hamza, the Shaheed, and then Al Abbas, who became a Muslim towards the end of the Ba'that, of the mission of the Prophet. Now, is it coincidental that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has Muhammad born to be the son of Abdullah and not Abdul Uzza and Abd Manaf? We say Muhammad ibn Abdullah. There's something here to think about. The other thing that comes into discussion here when we all speak about these types of issues is I'm talking about all of us Muslims. You know, I speak to Sunnis and Shi'is at the same time. So when I say all Muslims, I'm including everyone. When the issue of... Okay, we know Abdul Uzza, Abu Lahab, was an enemy of the Prophet. We know Hamza was a very supportive uncle of the Prophet. We know Al-Abbas became a Muslim towards the end. How about Abd Manaf, Abu Talib? What's his condition? We have some Muslims who say he was a Muslim, supportive of the Prophet, concealing his Islam. And other Muslims who say no. He never spoke, he never uttered a shahadatayn in public. He never said, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. And we have this area in which Muslims begin to, each one begins to tug in their own direction. Let me tell you, for these Muslims who say that Abu Talib was not or they even they go even further let uh, we have to clear this issue brothers and sisters if if we don't bring this issue into our public mind it's going to remain in the crevices of our suspicions and we have to mature enough to deal with these issues in our public mind so when these other muslims who say and I'm talking about those who come from a Sunni background. They say that Abu Talib is going to be the least one who is going to suffer in Jahannam. That's what they say. And they quote some hadith to that effect. That he'll be standing on ambers of fire. He won't be in a fire. Something like that. Let us say this is one problem. That This is a serious problem. They judge Abu Talib by what he did not say in public. This is what they say. I'm just saying what they say. They don't judge him by what he was doing. This is our problem. We judge people by words. 
We don't judge people by works. He was defending Allah's Prophet. What do you say about a person who's defending Allah's Prophet? You say a person who's defending Allah's Prophet is, gonna, is a kafir? Like some of them say. And besides, some people, let, let's say Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib is the Prophet's grandfather. Some of these Muslims, they say the Prophet's grandfather is a kafir. I think in one of these khutbas before we dealt with this issue, the Prophet says, I'm the choicest from the choicest from the choicest, meaning his grandfathers and great-grandfathers. And other hadiths to that effect. Besides, he is from the progeny of Ibrahim and Ismail. Now, how do you call a person Abdul Muttalib died before the Prophet became a Prophet? Muhammad was still young. He was about six years of age. And you call it, he never heard about Islam. You call a person a kafir, and we're not speaking about kafir in the Daishi or ISIS definition. We're speaking about it in the Quran. When you want to say a person is a kafir, he has to or she has to refuse and object to and take issue with Allah and His Prophet. Abdul Muttalib never did that. Why do you say he's a kafir? We, I'm speaking to those people who say these types of things. And in addition to that, let us ponder another issue here. I may have mentioned it once before, but it's good to mention it again. This ayah, this surah, was revealed in Mecca. It's a Meccan surah. And Abu Lahab, obviously he listened to this surah. He knew it's a surah about him. Wouldn't it have been easy to disprove Allah and his prophet by Abu Lahab saying, Ashhadu an la ilaha even nifaqan, even if he's hypocritical, to say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashhadu anna muhammadan rasulullah, and then he would have destroyed all of this wahi. He says, look, this is your Qur'an. This is what your God is telling you. He's telling you, I am condemned. Here I am. I come to you and I say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Couldn't he have done that? But some people, their intensity of hatred and objection to Allah and His Prophet has that intensity has doomed them so much that there's no hope for them. You can say the truth about them knowing that they've gone so far that they themselves have not made a return route, a return route to salvage or to redeem themselves from their past of hostility and enmity to Allah's Prophet and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. These are some of the issues that I think we should ponder, understand when we read a small surah like this. And I and what after thinking through this surah, and I, we should maybe sometimes 
substitute the word read for think. Instead of say read a certain surah, we should begin saying think through a certain surah. When I thought through this surah and my memory, I'm just human, my memory is limited, but whatever is in my memory, I began to recall and I listen to the people in the Haram, the people in the Arabian Peninsula when they read in their Salah. One thing that stands out in all of this is they don't read surahs like this. Are they subconsciously afraid that this may open up the thoughts of those who are listening so they don't tabbat yada abi lahab waylun li kulli humazatin lumaza alladhi jama'a malan wa'addada ayat that speak about money why don't they speak why don't they recite these ayat for everyone to hear so that we can begin to relate our ayat to our actions, our surahs to our societies. It's about time we come to Allah so that He can come to us in our prayers or during the Hajj. أَقُولُ خَوْلِ هَذَا وَأَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ لِي وَلَكُمْ أُدْعُوهُ سُبْحَانَهُ وَأَنْتُمْ عَلَى يَقِينٍ بِالْإِجَابَةِ وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَابُ الرَّحِيمِ الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed brothers and dear committed sisters Now we will come just like Surah Al-Masad was putting our fingers on real issues, on real personalities, in a real society, in real time. Now, we'll do the same, taking this type of approach and looking at our real society in our real time. We're not dead yet. We still have responsibilities. Okay, during this past week, news has circulated that one of the scholars who has been locked up in the prisons in Saudi Arabia has passed on. He was in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, an area called Al Qasim. He's been there for years. And finally, according to some reports, because of the lack of medical attention, he passes away in the dungeons of these Aba'ilahab. One of the news items pertaining to this clique of gangsters who rule in the Arabian Peninsula, Facebook said that it shut down 350,000 sites. Imagine the time. This is what when, when Allah says, مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَا لُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ 
Think about this. These were related. These sites were related to the Saudi to Saudi Arabia. Three hundred and fifty thousand. How many people do they have, or how how much technology are they being provided provided with to run three hundred and fifty sites that Facebook found not meeting its standards, and so it says, "Out of here with you." And then the Secretary of State from, from Washington, D.C. goes to Saudi Arabia this past week and he meets with another Abu Lahab, the young Abu Lahab, the Crown Prince Abu Lahab. And what are they discussing? They're discussing Iran, El Yemen, and secure passage of vessels in the Gulf. That's what they're discussing. If this Secretary of State could just mind his own business, come back to the United States and stop hopping around the world making problems in South America, in Venezuela, among other places, in the Orient, with China, among other places and in the Muslim East among other places see even if if we were novices in, in in politics I say these words because they don't want Muslims to express these types of words you can't be a Ron Paul Muslim I'm saying things that Ron Paul would say the US should mind its own business I'm saying they don't want Muslims to be a Bernie Sanders American when it comes to voting or political issues. Why? It's permissible for other people to say these things, that the U.S. should mind its own business. But when it comes to a Muslim, a Muslim is not permitted to say that. Whether he's an American Muslim, a legal resident Muslim, a visiting Muslim, whoever Muslim he is. We don't have that right? Tell us. If we don't have that come, speak to us. Something, of course, they'll keep their distance, they'll listen, they will record, they'll do these other things. Okay, fine. If we're wrong, correct us. We are open. We're not hiding anywhere. And then, I don't know if you know, but Saudi Arabia sends out invitations to sponsor Muslims to go to the Hajj. So they sponsored, according to some news reports, 200 Muslims from New Zealand. These are members of the families of those who were killed in those two masjids where that massacre of Muslims occurred. You can recall that some months ago. So the Saudi government invites some of these public relations stunt. And they invited some members of the Jordanian cabinet, ministers in the government, these ministers, they turned down that invitation. Bravo. These Muslims came from New Zealand. One of them is an elderly lady, an old lady, maybe in her 70s. If you saw the picture, you'd think, eh, she's in her 70s probably. So the minister of Awqaf in Saudi Arabia goes to this old lady and hugs her in Mecca during the time of the Hajj. And now you have the Saudi society we call it that because that's the official designation. I don't like to call 
the Arabian Peninsula, anything has to do with Saudis. So when I use these words, it's because these are the words that are out there. And so this society becomes polarized. Oh, astaghfirullah, inna lillah wa inna la hawla wa la quwwata. How does this person, the, the minister of waqf, how does he hug a Muslim lady? This, is, this borders on fahisha, according to some. It's a problem we have. And then the other said, no, 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 wait a minute. This is an old lady. And this person is jo- just showing his affection and condolences and sympathy with this la- sympathies with this lady. You see, this is the problem that Muslims are in. This is not peculiar to the Arabian Peninsula. But this is what's happening there nowadays. If, this, if there was another person who has some type of religious feature and he goes to an old lady and to express sympathy with her, he gives her a hug. What's, what's the fahisha in that? Something that, as I said, because we have inherited who we are, we don't think about who we are, and this is what happens. Things like this. And then the Saudis say that you can't bring politics to the Hajj. We've covered this territory many times before. Inshallah, if Allah gives us some willpower and some lifetime, we will cover it in other khutbahs. But we know this is contrary to Islam. It's contrary to what the first generation of Muslims understood Islam to be. It's contrary to the meanings of the Qur'an. The mushriks, if there's no political definition of the word mushrik, the word mushrik becomes a Judeo-Christian word. It becomes a biblical word. It's no longer a Qur'anic word. That's what they want you to believe. This is how they want you to think. A Judeo-Christian Islam. No. Everyone is responsible, even those who have power and money. They will help. They're not above Allah, and they are not, are not above the law of Allah. There are other issues that I wanted to cover with you. It's a hot day. I will just maybe do with a couple of them. Something odd happened last Friday. It's, it's not a usual thing. It's some, it happened in one of the masjids in Cairo, Egypt. The minister of, of Awqaf there, speaking about the mini, ministers of Waqf, the minister of Awqaf in Egypt began to give the khutbah and then a young person, bearded person, that's the way the news item described him, he stood up and took issue, public issue, with the wazir, with the minister of Awqaf. And there was some policeman around, some security person. They're all around the place. Wherever there's a minister, there's a security person. I want to remind you, the first four rulers after the Prophet had no security contingent with them. Not one security person defending them. They would go to the masjid like any person. They would speak to the Muslim like any person. No security around. For those who want to criticize, of course, some of them gave their lives for that. Actually, three of them gave their lives. Three out of four 
gave their lives because they didn't have any security people around. Don't say that oh, these were not smart, smart people. They couldn't think of having some policemen or guards or special guards or secret service or around them. No, they were not simple. They knew the risks that they were taking and they were willing to live up to whatever risk there is. And they gave their lives for that. So be careful, those of you who are quick to condemn this successor to the Prophet or that successor to the Prophet. Be careful what you say. So this, uh, excuse me, that was a maybe a, uh, <laughs> I went off on a limb there, but this person in the masjid, he took issue with this and then they took him. They just left. And what happened, th this khutbah was supposed to be televised on live television. Then all of a sudden, the television, the, the live feed was cut. There was no longer the khutbah on TV in Egypt. The Egyptian government said, no, that was a technical... Uh, they said it was something that has to do with the electricity or something, one of the cameras. One of these excuses that they gave. Other people said, no. This went off the air because they didn't want the Egyptian people to see what is happening in front of them. I want to say, uh, we, we, we can't leave a khutbah, we should not leave a khutbah without mentioning what is happening in colonized Palestine. Let me bring you one incident, a lot of things are happening. The Zionists are destroying homes in Al-Quds. Homes, Palestinians living in their own homes. They come and say, we're going to destroy this, get out, get lost. That's almost verbatim what they say to them. And they follow that up with nasty words and the show of force. And they are building settlements, they call them settlements. They're building colonies on Muslim lands. This will go. But anyways, they have an ambassador. The Israeli Zionist government has an Arab ambassador in Panama. He comes from the Durzi, Duruz community in colonized Palestine. This person went to the airport with his family. He has, uh, he's a diplomat. And then they subjected him to the treatment of the average Palestinian. And he was incensed. He was infuriated. Why is he treated like that? This is, and we, we saw how they treated their agents in South Lebanon. They had agents fighting for them in South Lebanon for many, many long years. And when the Israelis were finally kicked out of South Lebanon because of the heroic resistance of the committed Muslims in that area, they brought some of their agents with them. And how did they treat their agents? After a few years, some of them were living in barns. That's how they treat their agents, their mercenaries. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzukna tiba'ah.
وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه ولا تجعله ملتبسا علينا واجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا وسعت كل شيء رحمة وعلما فاغفر للذين تابوا واتبعوا سبيلك وقهم عذاب الجحيم ربنا وأدخلهم جنات عدن التي وعدتهم ومن صلح من آبائهم وأزواجهم وذرياتهم إنك أنت العزيز الحكيم ربنا لا تجعل في قلوبنا غلا للذين آمنوا ربنا إنك رؤوف رحيم ربنا إني أسكنت من ذريتي بواد غير ذي زرع عند بيتك المحرم ربنا ليقيم الصلاة أجعلتم سقاية الحاج وعمارة المسجد الحرام كمن آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وجاهد في سبيل الله لا يستوون عند الله إن الله لا يهدي القوم الظالمين إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وبارك على محمد وآل محمد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة